Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 133, and Piet Ratif and Dingane have started their final dance with death. It's a hot day in northern Zululand in the Volosi River Valley, where Dingane's capital, Mgungudlovu, was situated. When Piet Ratif first met the Zulu king, he failed to grasp the extent to which this man's authority was based on what historian John Labant calls a combination of mystical ritual and naked power politics. That Dingana was a despot is clear, but what was less understood was that his people allowed him to be so, that he could only make major decisions about political strategy with the input of important men, sometimes women, of the kingdom. The small inner sanctum of power, the Amkantlu, was a council that included the Abantwana, the princes of the royal house. Alongside these aristocrats were the Izunduna, state officials that were appointed as commanders of the Amabuto regiments. Some ruled over entire districts and administered justice in the king's name. Anyone was free to become an Induna, unlike the Umkantlu, but only after members of the aristocracy were unavailable to take up that position. Because these Induna were appointed, they had more to lose, and did the king's will more amenably. Even so, one of these Induna was going to balk when Dingan ordered him to kill Pitratif and his small party of men that had been negotiating land in the first week of November 1837. More about that at the end of this episode. Dingan's main Induna was Ndlela Kasumpiti, his other was Nzobo Kasobadli, and both of these Induna were of royal blood linked to the royal house. Oddly enough, the physical proof of their position was the permission to grow long fingernails. Men of high status grew their nails, particularly thumbnails, longer than an inch and a half, as a sign that they did not have to do manual labor. They were freed from having to hold hoes or wield implements. They also wore another symbol of power, the inkota, a massive and heavy brass armlet that reached from elbow to wrist and looked a bit like an ancient Greek arm shield. They favoured cloaks of dark blue cotton salimpo cloth that had been imported from Delagoa Bay and wore the skirts made of blue monkey skins sewn with twisted thongs of blue monkey and gannet and mongoose skins and a single upright plume of a blue crane feather worn above the forehead, a distinctive emblem of the elevated position. When Pitratif arrived at Umgungunlovu on the evening of 5th of November 1837, he would not have noticed these emblems immediately. The Zulu men were essentially semi-naked. Only the ornaments, arm bracelets, beads, brass, worn below the knee and around ankles, bands of beads slung over the shoulder, indicated power. You had to look closely to be certain. I mention all of this because we're heading towards a war and Dingana and his Nkantlu had conferred throughout this period about their policy regarding the Boers. Some Nkantlu had made up their minds long before. Dingana was biding his time. That the Boers were his enemy, he had already decided. And this was before he'd even heard about Mzilikatsi Kamalu's final fate. Once he heard that his archenemy, a former resident of northern Zululand, had been sent packing by the Boers, his Amandabili crushed. There was nothing but conflict that awaited these two implacable forces about to crunch into each other in Zululand.
But Dingana would only discover this in the new year of 1838. Right now, all he knew is that Mzilikatsi's homestead of Masecha had been destroyed, not that the man of the Kamalo clan had been forced to flee. Dingana thought that a man of the Zululand's fighting ethos would bounce back, perhaps even deflect the Boers from his Mariko sanctuary of Igabeni. There's much to say before, so let's hear about the fascinating march towards the inevitable. It's always in matters of death that rituals are well defined. When his people gathered, or the Indunas and their warriors gathered, the king would sit in front of his Izinkeku, his main advisers, and the Izinkulu, the Izinduna, arranged before him, sitting around 15 meters away. Dingana would quietly talk to Ingleda, the commander-in-chief, who would then turn around and shout loudly to the gathered Izinduna, sitting in the front of the Umkumbi, their sections, who would repeat the message or command to the men behind them. Because it was loud, there was no broken telephone problem. The Indunas repeated the orders to the word. After each order or comment had been passed, Inglela would shout, Do you hear the king? And the warriors would reply, Yes, father. When Dingana found something mirthful and laughed with his peculiar closed-mouth laugh, embarrassed about his little rotting teeth, the men would laugh subserviently when he stood up. The warriors would shout, Bayadi, the king, and stand, then stoop, bending from the hip as he passed by. When accused of a crime, all offenders would be made to sit on the ground in a semicircle facing the king while the Nkaeku shaded him with a shield. Miscreants would either be killed or fined. To the right of the main entrance at Umkungundlovu was a valley that dipped away with gentle slopes, and this was the place known as Kwangkata, the place of execution. The lowest reaches of the valley were beyond sight, shielding people from the final moments. Victims would be struck once on the head with a knobkerry, and the force meant usually instant death. Sometimes they'd have their necks broken. Women and men of status could be throttled to death with a noose instead. Their bodies would be dragged across the Umkumbani stream and left on the Kwamatawani, the steep stony hill about half a kilometre north-northeast of the main gate of Umgunguglovu. It was a sinister place. The smell of death hung about it, named after Matawani Kamsumpa of the Ngwani, as you remember. However, when many people were to die, the king preferred them to die more visibly on the Kwa Matawani itself, as Kwa Nkata was a bit more secluded. The killings were to work as a message. This had happened in 1834, when Dingane had been told that commoners who'd come to visit were stealing into his Izugodlo at night and sleeping with the women. Enraged, he'd ordered his regiments, the Udlambedlu, the Mkuluchani, the Izinyozi, to round these men up, march them off to Kwamatawani, and over two days killed dozens as a warning. Had they indeed been sleeping with the maidens, we are not entirely sure. Their bodies were left for the hyenas, the jackals, and the vultures. And now two men, who you've heard about, were going to be central in the upcoming killing spree, pitting Zulu against Boer. In Zobo, Kasobatli, who we know more commonly as Dambuza, and in Lela, Kasompisi. In Zobo was overweight, ill-tempered, always walking about with a pale blanket thrown around his portly frame. 
When Dingana wanted to compromise or even consider mercy, it was Zorbo who often strengthened the king's resolve, insisting that the killing of people is a proper practice, for if no killing is done, there will be no fear. Intlela was of the same opinion, apparently, although he was a contradiction, and thought of a more warmly in the oral history storytelling. Intlela was also the brother of Bibi, the beautiful, Senzanga Kona's favorite wife. He had been prominent during Shaka's reign, a warrior of note, also a man who had the gift of the gab, and an orator in his own right, tall, dark-skinned, with a slight beard and a protruding belly, a sign of wealth amongst the slightly older. He was technically Nzobu's senior and a superior because Nlela was chief counsellor and commander-in-chief. The missionaries like Owen, now living alongside Mgungudlovu, had heard it was these two who ordered executions and knocked Dingan, as the prose poem the Zimbongo goes, Mbuzi ka dambuza benotlela abayimbambe nganlebe yabakazela. Goat of Dambuza and Inlela, which they held by the ear, and it was patient. By goat, of course, they meant Dingan. And Dingan was also ox that encircles homesteads with tears. Mamba, who, when he was down, he was up. A dangerous, cunning, and brutal king who was about to live up to his name. It was the 6th of November, 1837, the day after they arrived at Umgungulovu, that Pit Retief and his small party were ushered before Dingan as he sat in his large chair flanked by the Izunduna and his courtiers, the Umkantlu. Eyeing the Boers was Dingan's favourite dog, Makwetlana. Lying alongside the king's chair, paws outstretched, tongue lolling, a fatso of a hound and treated better than most of the king's subjects. Dingan had dressed up for this meeting and was wearing a splendid robe with red, white and black stripes, which he held over his face like a veil. By doing so, he could observe the Boers without them observing him. Ratif never described in his letters what the Zulu king looked like. Still, what would have struck the Boer leader was his eyes. When eventually the king dropped the robe from his face and broke the tense silence after a minute with Zakubona. I see you. It was Dingana's eyes that saw you, that remained long in the memory for most who visited him, revealing a fierce glance that was apprehensive, volatile, quick, engaged, observing. Nothing escaped these eyes, said trader Nathaniel Isaacs. More than once he'd been quelled by what he called the piercing and penetrating eyes of Dingan that rolled when he was angry. Dingan knew that he faced dangerous men. The Boers were imhanga, deadly, and they wanted his kingdom, or at least a large portion. Furthermore, they were discourteous, for they had arrived bearing no gifts. They just showed up with demands. How dare they, he must have thought. That didn't look good. It made Dingan appear unimportant in front of his people. Even the British had sent gifts, so to the missionaries, despite being obviously poor. And yet, here were these lords of the felt, these men who defeated people like the Amakosa, with their grand trousers and their jackets, their hats, their guns, their horses, their wagons. 
the Boers who'd shot entire herds of elephant and sold their tusks, and they bought him nothing. The Zulu king set about displaying his power by military exercises and events for the next 48 hours, including 2,000 young Amaputo who fought a mock battle, then 4,000 of the more experienced older warriors, head-ringed men, the ones most feared by Dungana's enemies, who put on a show for the visitors, the veterans. The veterans shouted warnings to the Boers, We are as hard as stones, nothing can hurt us. There was no more obvious sign of wealth for both the Boers and the Zulu than cattle, and so it was that Dingana collected a herd of 2,224. All were red with a white back, known as the Isintulo, or lizards, the most valuable cows, and these were driven in front of Retief and his companions to count, which they did. On the 8th of November, 1837, all these displays of power and majesty ended, and Dingana got down to business. What do you want here? asked the king suddenly. Thomas Halstead, the Natal boy, who was now a man of twenty-six, translated Retief's words. We are seeking land and have left some of our people in their wagons on the other side of the Drakensberg Mountains to await our return. How can you ask me for land when a group of you stole cattle that belonged to me from one of my kraals last month? Dingon snapped. That was not us said Retief, which was true. It was Sikonela's Batlokwa who'd raided the Amatlubi, a people who lived in the foothills of the Drakensberg. They acknowledged Dingana as their king, and now the Zulu regent was accusing the Boers of theft. It should be easy to sort this out. Retief explained that Sikonela had bought firearms, and he also rode horses, his men dressed in trousers. They wore hats. They looked like the Boers. Retief had, of course, been informed, and I mentioned this previously, that the Batlokwa were rustling cattle from the Amatlubi. By now, not only the Batlokwa, but the Basutu and the Drostas were doing the same. It so happened that Dingana was fully aware of who had been doing the rustling, but he wanted Ratif to pass a test. The Boer leader should embark on a quest. The Zulu king demanded the Amabunu prove themselves to him. The Batlokwa, it so happened, had been rustling for the last two years. This was not a recent phenomenon. So far, Sikunyela had refused to send back any of the cows and had insulted Dingon, saying, Tell that impubescent boy that if he wants to be circumcised, let him come and I'll circumcise him. The Zulu custom of circumcision had been stopped in Shaka's time, as you know, but the Patlokwa continued with this rite of passage. The Batlokwa lived on the upper reaches of the Kaladin Valley, more than 300 kilometers from where Dingon lived. Retief knew that Dingon knew the real criminals were not him, but the Boer leader also realized it was an opportunity to demonstrate beyond doubt the good faith of the Boers and that Dingon was demanding proof of goodwill beyond mere words or little signed documents. Instead of leaving it at that, the Boer leader felt he should show off his power in front of his men, and before departing on the mission, he repeated a warning. He reminded the Zulu king that God was with the Trekkers, and that God punished bad kings. It was the second time Dingon had heard that threat, and this time he and his Ikanlu decided to do something about it. And thus, Dingon sent a message to a minor chief called Silwebana, whose homestead lay on the Boer leader's route towards the Tugela River, 
kill the Boers when they arrived, was his command. Before they departed, Retief had a meal with Francis Owen at his mission, and the missionary tried to convince the Boer leader not to ride to Sikonyela and advised him to avoid returning to Dingan. He reminded Retief that the Zulu king was famous for never keeping his word. He vacillated, he shifted positions constantly, and no one believed him about anything. Owen suggested instead that Retief and the Boers should allow the British to take control of Natal, then they would all be granted land and be shielded by the vast empire. Obviously, that suggestion was battered away by Ratif, who feared the British more than the Zulu. He could fight Dingan, but the Boers had left the Cape precisely because they could not fight English power. Ratif and his men left the Zulu king Zikanda and rode out towards Port Natal, passing through Selwebana's land, the land of the Kwakangela Ikantla. Dingan had said Selwabana should invite the Boer leader to a party, and while entertaining him, he should be killed. It's one of the oldest ploys in the book, practiced throughout the ages. Lured to a banquet and killed is a kind of B-grade history novel trope. It's so prosaic. But for some reason, Selwabana shunned the order and let Retief pass. Then, fearing Dingan's retribution, he and his people fled south across the Tukela River. Unfortunately, Dingana had sent spies to monitor Retief, and once Retief had left, an MP caught up with Selwabana's people, and most were killed or drowned in the Tukela as they tried to flee. Some of the poor captured women were dragged back to Mkungunlovu and executed there to satisfy Dingan's thirst for revenge. Silvabane himself and a handful of his people survived and hunkered down somewhere in Durban's vicinity. Back at the port, Retief was totally unaware of his near-death experience and was acting with bravado, boasting of the firm handling of the Zulu king. Look, said the urbane Boer, Dingan had been forced to agree to handing over a large grant of territory in his kingdom. Retief had gone so far as to tell the American missionary on the Tugela by the name of George Champion that Dingana was going to sell him land in exchange for the cattle retrieved from Sikonela. He'd do this, of course, with a commander of 60 men only, said the Boer. Champion was horrified, believing that Retief was deluded and told the Boer leader that he was foolish, he was endangering his men, and that God would hold him responsible for the needless loss of Boer lives, that Dingan was tricking him. Instead, Retief joked that the Dutch understood the mind of the Zulu better than the English, whereupon Champion reminded him he was actually American, not English. The difference between an Englishman and an American is so small it is negligible, quipped Retief, making the mistake many have done since. But John Kane and the other settlers in Durban were alarmed. They had heard about Silverbiner's plot. They were far more experienced in Zulu matters and in dealing with the devious king, despite being Englishmen, and kept warning Retief to be on his guard. Retief appeared to be living in his own world to some extent, brushing off the warning, saying that they were on their way to setting up what he called the Trekkers Niva Holland near the Tugela. His eyes glowed with happiness. So much pain and suffering, so much historic oppression by the accursed English. Soon they would reach Nirvana. Retief told the traders at Durban that exciting times were coming, that the Boers would descend the Drakensberg and take over the whole of Natal. 
He was trying to be upbeat, but all this did was to scare the traders. Now they'd be overwhelmed by voortrekkers. Retief said the trekkers would seek 6,000 morgen of land each, a massive 12,702 acres. That scared the traders even more. Yeah, said Retief. The Boers would select the best land, and because they'd be in the majority, the English settlers would be governed in the Boer manner. Four men and a couple of women who prided themselves on their ties to the British Empire. This was bad news. Meanwhile, Retief had sent word on the 11th of November to his folk based around the Drakensberg escarpment about what he called the successful negotiations with Dingaan regarding land, and his letter was followed by wild rejoicing the promised land was theirs. On the 13th of November, and totally against his orders, some of the trekkers began to descend the Drakensberg, and by nightfall were camped along a stream at the bottom. This descent was not without its risks, and the foretrekkers removed their rear wheels from the wagons, replacing these with large tree trunks that acted as brakes on the steep slopes. It was the descent of great skill into a time of great peril. While the men concentrated on the wagons, the women and children walked down alongside, tending to the sick and the elderly. News of Retief's visit to Dingaan began to circulate amongst the trekkers, and the slow movement became a flood. News of this development also reached Dingaan's ears shortly. Within a few weeks, more than 1,000 wagons had crossed over the Drakensberg, including those of Gerrit Maritz, Piet Ace, and even Hendrik Potkita. They outspanned amongst the sweet grass of the rolling well-watered countryside around the headwaters of the Tugela River and its tributaries, the Mchesi, or the Bushman's River, the Msuluzi, the Blaukrans, called Blaukrans or Blue Cliffs because its cliffs are a bluish colour. You can imagine how happiness engulfed the foretrekkers. Two years of toiling through the felt, living in their wagons, attacked by Amandabeli, surviving, and now... It possibly had all ended. But these people needed resources. Their cattle and households used up local grazing and firewood rapidly, and the groups began to splinter as they sought new land along the banks of these rivers. These rivers that were Dingaans. Unlike other parts of the Cape, shot out of game, there were still many wild animals roaming around, including elephant and rhino. The trekkers began to shoot the hippo and the elant and the elephant and the rhino, and then organized lion hunts. The very symbol of the Isuzulu, the lion, was being exterminated quickly by the accurate fire from the Boers' Sanus. On the 27th of November, Retief rejoined the trekkers at the foothills of the Drakensberg, and by then, these 1,000 wagons were stretched out across the verdant landscape, while the trekkers had already begun organizing their church council for this new land. Retief was not displeased. How could he be? His people were on the move to their hallowed destination led by God. Even Predikant Erasmus Smit was allowed to baptize the first children born of the Furtrekkers, the first born in the country of Dingaan, as he said during the first baptism of a Boer child in Natal. The Boers were congratulating themselves for settling on Dingaan's land, and that was the crux of the problem. Only five days before, on the 22nd of December, 1837, Dingaan had held his Umkosi first fruit ceremony at Mkungudlovu, and the excitable Amabuto had assured the king they were ready to fight. All Indunas knew what was coming, 
and their men were ready. The Boers were now on land they did not own. This was unambiguously part of the Zulu kingdom. This was not the little parcel around Durban occupied by the English traders. This was the most sensitive property in Dingaan's eyes, where his and Shaka's impis had toiled away, seizing and securing these lands from bandits that roamed the high felt through the Infatrani times. The ripple effect was growing as Retief planned his trip to collect Dingaan's cattle from Sikonyela, all the way over the Drakensberg into the Caledon Valley. Yes, he was determined to fulfill his part of the deal. Then matters around the headwaters of the Tugela turned ugly. The trekkers began looting the locals' maize and sorghum from the Umizi, the homesteads, where inhabitants fled as the Fortrekker wagons rolled into view. Just before Retief returned to Dingaan in the new year of 1838, some of the trekkers boasted of looting 80 heavy wagon loads of up to 14 three-bushel bags to a wagon, around 80 tons or more of grain, ill-gotten grain. At a meeting on the 5th of December 1837, it was agreed that Retief lead a small party of Boers and the eight Zulu men who travelled with Retief all the way from Ingunlovu over the escarpment to hunt down Sikonyela and reclaim Dingan's cattle. Some annals say that Retief left on Christmas Day, others that he departed on the 28th of December, but we know that he departed with a commander of 50 burghers joined by Thomas Halstead, the interpreter. Halstead was only going because Dingaan had ordered him to. It was important for the youngster to translate what was going on for the two Zulu Izenduna travelling with Retief, keeping an eye on him, so to speak. One was Mtweni Kasitibela, Dingaan's leading in Theku, who was observing the Boer's actions and reporting back to Dingaan. Coming up soon... Sikonyela, the Batlokwa chief, was going to be handcuffed in a dishonorable act, tricked into attending a meeting, the Boer's own version of a prosaic trope. But none of what happened next was going to be to Dingan's liking. We'll hear about Sikonyela and the final days of Pitratif next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. Don't forget to head off to the website desmondlatham.blog. You can contact me there or through Twitter at strokex at deslatham. Until next, tot seats. Thank you.